0: Hey, are you there?
1: Hello. Can you hear me? Hello.
0: Um. Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. 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 Hey. Today on Redeemed, we have the special privilege of hearing from a good friend of mine, Heather Enright. Heather is an author speaker, adoption, social worker, wife, mother, and many other things. Her most recent book, Sewing in Tears, is all about God's response to our grief. Heather, just welcome, first of all.
1: Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank
0: you for sitting down with me. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself first off?
1: I'm married to my college sweetheart, Chris, and our kids were in this strange season of emptying nest, but with COVID, filling, emptying, filling, emptying, but our kids are 22, 20, and 16 and have a child finishing college. So like entering the real world, grown-up world, I've been an adoption social worker my whole career and help with the foster adoption advocates at our church and then involved in some other initiatives, a collaboration with a friend who's an adult adoptee, trying to create free resources for kids, foster kids, kids in care, kids who've been adopted and their families and those who love and serve them. And then I also am a creative who just loves to chase down any crazy idea that I have. So I also help moms with emptying nests host care packing parties and have a website for that where you can also purchase care packages. So Little entrepreneurship, little creativity, writing, mothering, adoption. All the things. That's awesome. Who am I today? What am I doing today?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What do I want to be today? I do
1: wake up like, what? Who? Oh, today I'm an adoption social worker. Yeah. Today I (laughs) am an adoptee advocate. Today.
0: (laughs) Oh, what a life. You wrote this book, Sewing in Tears. It's called Sewing in Tears, The Father's Heart to the Grieving. Can you share a little bit? about kind of what the impetus for this book was, like what sent you on this path of really looking into, does God care about our grief? What does he think about it? What does he think towards us in yeah. our grieving?
1: Yes, I'm happy to. It's a very long story, so I'll try to not get into every tiny little facet of it. But I grew up in a Christian family, and my I was military brat, army brat. And then my dad became a pastor when I was in middle school in a small Texas town. And I grew up feeling like I had this beaver cleaver childhood. You know, my parents loved each other and we went to church every Sunday. And I began to follow Jesus at a really young age. It all sort of fell apart when I was 17, my senior year in high school, and my dad was diagnosed with cancer. He had had cancer when I was a girl, but it had been successfully removed by surgery. So the second cancer was sort of a blip on the radar initially because, oh, they're going to do surgery. Everything looked like it was a go with that. And then partway through the surgery, the doctor just gathered us in the hallway and said, he has three to six months. There's nothing we could do. It's all throughout his liver. And the negative liver biopsy was a false negative just that bombshell and just the way it was delivered you know bless i i don't know what it's like to have to give some a family that news but i had to call my sister and tell her she wasn't with us that day and just suddenly feeling like my entire world had fallen out from under me i really realize in hindsight now that i was really a daddy's girl my dad was really very hands on and when he, he died when I was a freshman at Baylor at the end of my freshman year. In the aftermath of his death, I was really left to grieve on my own. I've really learned that people respond to grief in a lot of different ways. And we have to have grace and give each other room for that. But where that left me was grieving really on my own as a having just turned 19 and sort of realizing that people don't know what to do with that. I certainly didn't at that age. I didn't know how to handle it. I felt bitter because I felt like I had this great life and then it's all just been stolen away. And I really carried the weight of that for decades until there was this revelation more recently where I feel like the Lord said, wasn't it good of me to put that on your dad's heart, to be that involved and make that many memories? So it allowed me, instead of feeling so robbed having that epiphany allowed me to say i can be grateful for that that he crammed a lot into those 19 years grief was really the, the the marker for me it's where my world fell apart so i'm this college kid where it feels like everybody's life is picture perfect and i'm independent financially and otherwise i don't have a lot of support my peers didn't know what to do with it i did start dating my husband then I was such a gem. I really can see why he fell so in love with me crying all the time. Um, but a lot of physical ailments that first year. And really, in hindsight, I was clinically depressed. But there was nobody in my life to really point that out to me and speak into me. I was having some pastoral counseling with my college minister at the church I was attending. And my dad died in May fourteenth, 1990. In February of 1991, both of my grandfathers were diagnosed with cancer in the same week. And when I called my college minister to try to process that, he let me know it was beyond his scope and the counseling was coming to an end. So in hindsight, I can say where a lot of things could have been different and might have been easier, but then again, that would deny the fact that I was sort of left with running at God. I I didn't run from him. I didn't run to him. I ran at him with all of the feelings and the loneliness. And the way that looked was pads of paper and long, honestly, scathing letters to God where I was writing him letters about all of the things happening to me, all of the feelings that I had. And at the time, I felt like I was kind of denying the mentality that I grew up with, that I was being a bad Christian, that I was lacking faith, that I wasn't trusting him. But in hindsight, I can see, no, I was wrestling with him. I was engaging with him. And I wasn't getting answers, but I was being held through it. And so it was this place in my life where everything that I knew felt like it was ripped apart and taken away, God was still there. Somewhere in there, in the few months after dad died, another college student was killed in a car wreck whom I didn't know. But his parents came to our college service and shared their testimony. And his mom said, when you hit rock bottom, it's the rock of ages. And I just remember that statement. I just kind of held on to that and like I said, ran at God with these long letters. And there was a specific day that I sat on the floor in my bedroom, having just been released from the hospital for um, some sort of infection. I was running a 105 fever. I had so many physical ailments that year, shingles, other things happening from the grief. I just remember feeling like I just want to go to sleep. I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I had any thoughts of harming myself. But I did sleep a lot and thought I just would like to sleep and not wake up for a good long while and said to the Lord, even out loud, I believe, how mad I was. Like the scene in Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan is like railing at God during the storm. I just was letting him have it. And then I was waiting, you know, for, I guess, the lightning bolt. And I felt this very gentle voice in my head saying, Don't you think I know exactly how you feel? Lay it all on the table. Now we can get real and get to work. And I just, that was the turning point where I felt like the Lord was like, it's okay. You know, I know exactly how you feel and I'm right here and I'm meeting you in it. So I'd always thought in that season, you know, loving to write and that being part of my process. Oh, someday I'll write a book about grief, but I didn't want to just tell my story. I wanted to offer something to the reader that was like, here's the traction, here's the foothold to gain, but I didn't have the footholds yet. So, I had the idea to write about Ruth and then God's perfect timing 30 years later, you know, realized this is the book on grief, and it it all sort of came together through Losing a friend from church, that was the perfect timing, that the Lord in his goodness and his sweetness had worked through so many things and given me the hindsight of 30 years later to say, here's, here's the message on grief to share. You talk about
0: wrestling in your book as well, and there is a biblical precedent for it. The story of Jacob in the Bible, he actually physically wrestles mm-hmm. with what we can assume is God. I think there are a lot of people in the world who would not claim a relationship with God, mm-hmm. not necessarily because they've never had any knowledge of him or experience with religion, even, but usually because they're angry with God mm-hmm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you feel like God invites us to wrestle?
1: I absolutely do. And I think that that is some of the misnomer. I wish I could go back to my childhood self and say, it doesn't have to be a race of faith. I mean, that is scriptural in Hebrews 12. But I grew up the gold star chart, the earning love, earning approval. I'm not saying that my church necessarily was teaching it that way. That was how I was interpreting it and receiving what faith was, was that you, you know, you the little check mark on the envelope. Anybody else that grew up in, in my faith tradition, we had these little envelopes for your offering, and you checked off, you know, brought your Bible to church, read your Bible every day. I'm also a high achiever and a perfectionist. But there was also this sense that at home, for whatever reason, to perform, to earn love. And so the idea of faith being this performance and this actions and God's love being earned and being tolerated by God, those are the things that he's unraveled in my adult life. And I've come to love the story of Jacob. You know, my season of deep grief when I was a young adult was where God was saying, it's okay to wrestle with me. He just has continually written that message deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I love in researching, sowing in tears, the revelation that when Jacob wrestled with the angel, or you know, the presence of God that he left with a limp, and that God gave him a new name and called him Israel. And of course, his 12 sons are the tribes of Israel. And in the original language, Israel literally means one who contends with God. I feel like I just wish I could sit down over a cup of coffee with those people that feel angry with God to say, He invites that. In fact, he called the israelites his people but he was literally saying those who contend with me those who wrestle with me are my people and not those who perform well those who you know never get it wrong those who always just blindly follow along and never question this is where i feel like the world and the church can often get it wrong is that we have forgotten that truth that He actually says, my people are those who contend with me. So let me ask you, do you feel like
0: there should be or ever is an end to the wrestling? That that moment in your dorm room where you felt the Lord say, okay, now we can move forward. Do you feel like that was the end to your wrestling? Or do you feel like there has ever been an end?
1: No, I don't think there's been an end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like um, I have to say at this point, midlife, turning 50 this year, that I feel like my faith walk is a faith wrestle. And it just changes. You know, there's seasons in life where the way things are going that I feel like we're ve- I'm very much sitting next to him, being held by him, following in his footsteps. But there always seems to be something I'm wrestling with. And I I've come to embrace that as the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things I do want to do? That's the truest picture of living in a broken world in our sinful flesh and our sin nature is we're constantly wrestling against that to try to be an image-bearer of God, living for an unseen kingdom. And that tension of living in a broken world for an unseen kingdom. That is a wrestling match at the end of the day. So I feel like life on earth, wrestling is just, it's part of the daily thing. It may not be these deep, profound wrestling, like, why did you let this happen? You know, like the storm and railing at God, It, it may be just a tiny little wrestle, or maybe it's just a break in between. But that is every day is waking up to say, I live in the flesh. I I'm captive to sin and death in my own flesh nature, but I am going to live for a kingdom that I can't see.
0: What was it about the story of Ruth that drew you to dig in and write about it?
1: I would love to give like a super spiritual churchy answer, but I don't have that. Instead, I had written Chase the Kingdom about Esther, which was... Man, Esther and I, we just spent a lot of time together, over 10 years back and forth, and the end book was my fourth version. I literally have four versions of that book. And at the end of publishing that, I very arrogantly told my husband in um, October of 2019, like, "I'm going to write a book about Ruth next year." And he was like, "I see you hot shot just because, you know, you did this one book. Like, don't get too big for your britches here. What's going on? And I'm like, Ruth, is just four chapters. You know, I can knock that out. Now I have my process of my research steps and, you know, my writing process down. So honestly, it was just my grandmother said, are you trying to get through all the women in the Bible? When I told her, I said, no, I just, I I just, after studying Esther, Ruth feels like it's the next thing. And then, of course, how God was in that, in a very, in my mind, what felt unspiritual coming to this, I'll write about Ruth. But he was in that because both Esther and Ruth um, have connections to Jewish feasts, where those two books are read at annual Jewish feasts still. And then, of course, as the revelation came, that this is the book on grieving. Speaking
0: of Ruth being read at the Festival of Harvest, You called your book Sowing in Tears, which comes from Psalm 126. The verse for that says something along the lines of those who sow in tears will reap a harvest of joy. What do you mean by sowing in tears? If you were to define that, what is that?
1: I think sowing in tears is doing the daily work of learning to coexist with what has been lost. Sowing in tears is the hard part of the journey when the loss comes. And after the numbness and the shock, which I think are God's gifts to get you through really surreal things like planning a funeral and grieving a dream, you know, whatever that is that your loss is, I think there's the initial shock, the initial loss, it wears off. And then comes the process of, I have to coexist with this loss because grief is lifelong. It's not something you check off a box. It's just learning to coexist with what's been lost and coming to a place where you can say, I'm going to choose to trust you, Lord, even though this happened.
0: What do you feel like the harvest is at the end?
1: I feel like the harvest is, it's ongoing. That's what I want to tell people that are in that really hard season where the loss is so fresh. And it's just the pain. There's just nothing else but the pain. I want to, I wish that I could just tell every one of them that the harvest is for the rest of your life, because that's what I've seen in mind that in Isaiah 61, you know, he, Jesus came to turn our ashes to beauty. And that is an ongoing, continual process. And that harvest is unique to every person. The harvest is the ways that you see God move within even your darkest night. The harvest is realizing in your grieving who is sitting with you in the muck. The harvest is realizing how whatever you've lost has been used for somebody else. You know, if if you've lost a person to death, then... How did that person impact other people? That's part of that harvest is realizing those things. If it's a loss of a dream of motherhood or marriage or those things, it's the little, the harvest is the little realizations of this is how God is using this pain. This is the good coming from that. And what I've learned in all the years since losing my dad is the harvest is, like I said, it's ongoing, and it's ever surprising. I wish I could tell my 19-year-old self that, that for the rest of your life, that you are going to get these tiny, tiny glimpses of how I've used this in you, and through you, and for you, knowing that I'm going to choose to trust on the other side when I meet Jesus face-to-face, There's untold ways that I will never see this side of heaven.
0: Yeah, because isn't that kind of the MO of God is to bring life out of death and bring harvest in the midst of sowing? I can't imagine being in the middle of grief and trying to process that. In your book, you give people really good questions and applications to kind of walk through looking around for those things, looking around for the community that is there with you and for you. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of community, maybe to someone who is grieving, how they can look for their community, but then also to a community, how they can reach out to the grieving?
1: Yeah, this is a big thing to me, because I did grieve without a lot of community. I had a lot of wonderful friends, but community um, was something I lacked. And I think that I'm just going to be honest, as a culture outside the church, we are awful at grieving. We do not have rituals. We do not have norms. You know, what we do have is candlelight vigils, which that's fine and that's a norm, but it still doesn't, it's nothing like the picture we have of the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva, where they literally are sitting in their brokenness and nothing is expected from them. For seven days, somebody is sitting with them. It's the cultural norm, and they aren't even to get up and answer the door. They are just allowed the space to just not function. And so as a culture, we don't have those norms. And then in the church, I just think we have a long way to go as far as allowing people to hurt and seeing that as a sign of faith instead of a sign of weakness allowing that space to just question and be angry and have all of the feelings. So for sure community is so important and we've got to do better. We've got to do better by the grieving. And if you're grieving, it's really you just aren't hardly getting out of bed and maybe some days you don't. And so it's really hard for me to feel like I can say to anybody in that fresh grief like here's what you need to do. I don't want to add to that task. But you know the people that show up it's okay to hold them accountable to what they're called to do biblically. And we are called biblically to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, to carry the burden. And we've got to take that more seriously as a church community.
0: I think a lot of times when somebody is grieving, we are uncomfortable with the fact that we can't fix what's wrong with them. And We are a people who like to fix things. And so when we can't, we send a casserole and we step away. I mean, I've seen that in my own life, like not in people doing that to me, but me responding to people's grief in that way because it's uncomfortable. I love that you brought up sitting Shiva and this idea of, I've heard somebody else call it a a theology of sitting, that you enter into, like you said, the muck with those who are hurting. I also like to think about pitching your tent in the valley with somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, that you move in next door not to fix it, but just to be present with them. And that is a hard and uncomfortable thing to do, but we as a people and as a church, it's it's important for us. It's life-giving when we can take a step out of our own comfort
1: and say, I'm
0: just going to sit with you in this for a while.
1: Yeah, even in my 19-year-old self, I, I could recognize that it was, I didn't want to carry the burden. I didn't want to wake up every day feeling like my world is torn apart and I have, I am on my own. And I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this shift of everything that. I held dear everything that felt secure that I had just always assumed was going to be there. I didn't want to carry that burden. So I got it when other people were uncomfortable. I understood when I went back to my hometown and the only people that had known my dad were my high school friends. My college friends didn't know him. So I went back to my hometown and tried. I needed to process a little bit. It was just a couple months after dad died and I was sort of redirected. And even at the time, I thought, note to self, you know, and they were grieving my dad too. I mean, he hosted my friends, he cooked for them, and they were feeling the weight of it, and it was uncomfortable. And I understood that at the time, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. I mean, it's the mentality of we can do hard things, we're called to do hard things, and we need to be okay being uncomfortable. And when you're the grieving, it's saying, I need you to show up. It's reaching out to a friend. It's finding those safe places and and saying, the people that have shown up for you saying, can I can I text you when I'm having a hard day? A friend of mine said that she and uh, one of her dear friends came up with a little system where she sent her a yellow heart text. And it just meant, I see you. I just thought of you and I'm praying for you. So it's even those simple things, figuring out some little system. but Absolutely. The church has to be the friends of the paralytic carrying the mat. It's heavy and I can't get through the crowd and I'm going to dig through the roof to lay my friend before Jesus. And that is as pragmatic as saying, Holy Spirit, bring the grieving to mind. It's having a prayer journal and writing down those needs and looking at it regularly so that you can lift up the friends that are grieving and then shoot them a text. Hey, I thought of you today. I prayed for you this morning. Or just sending them a verse. It is forcing your hand however you need to, to let the people who are hurting know they're still seen.
0: I think that in our grieving, we all ask the question, why? but we don't always get an answer to why. So if you were going to talk to somebody who's still in the midst of asking why, feeling like they're never going to have that closure that an answer feels like it would be, you talk about in your book that God uses our grieving and our suffering. And so I wonder if you would, if you would talk a little bit about the difference between getting an answer to your why and finding purpose through your grief.
1: That I think that that is the trick of grieving. Like, that is the challenge of grieving is when the nonsensical happens, how do you make sense of it? It is really hard to live in that place of searching for answers because we want to understand them. And I think the best way I can answer this question, I'm going to attempt to answer your question. Is um, as telling a story. When I was young in my career as an adoptive parent caseworker, I had clients who lost a child. They had never met the birth family, but in their grieving, they wanted the birth family to, to have an invitation to be part of the grieving. So my job was to drive, uh, one of my jobs besides facilitating that meeting was to drive the birth grandmother back to the airport after the memorial service. And so here is this sweet woman who I've never met, who had never um, met this family, whose daughter had made this hard choice to plan adoption for her child, and he was lost at a young age in a really tragic way. And she said, how can God be good if he let this happen? And why did this happen? And she, it was really a rhetorical question. You know, she was just really processing. And I, it was never a conscious thought. It just slipped out of my mouth. And I have held to it ever since. When this moments was like, oh, I need to write that down. That was totally the Holy Spirit. That I told her, if God were small enough for us to understand, then he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship it doesn't sit well with us usually to be in a in a place of i don't get it i don't understand it i want to understand it but you do and that's enough that's not a comfortable place we like to stay in control and when loss happens and and grief is going on in your life you there's such a sense of loss of control so that's a really hard place to to be to say um i don't understand it But that's part of what makes you worthy of my worship is that you hold things that I cannot see.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me today, Heather. And you can find Heather's book, Sewing in Tears, on Amazon, or you can go to her website, www.boxclub.me. For more stories like this, check us out at redeemedvoices.com